Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, we ask you now to, uh, to do a great work in our hearts. Lord, cause us to behold your glory this morning and therein to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, have you ever had a dream where you thought you were falling, like off of a high cliff or off of a tall building, and suddenly you woke up with a start, and in the pit of your stomach, you had that feeling, you know, the one you get on the big drops on roller coasters, as if you really were falling, right? And maybe you're breathing really hard, and your heart's pounding, And maybe you even let out a little scream. Because dreaming about falling can be terrifying, right? Almost as terrifying as the real thing. But sometimes life events can cause us to feel that way. Have you ever had the rug pulled out from under you? Have you ever been in a situation where the fear in the pit of your stomach made you feel like you were falling and there was no one there to catch you? It's a feeling that you might get if you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. It's a feeling you might get when your marriage starts to crumble. Or maybe when your unmarried daughter gets pregnant. Or when you're faced with the loss of your job when you're betrayed by a friend, when someone close to you dies. All of these situations have happened to people in Piney Ridge Church in the last year. And all of these situations can make you feel like you're falling. And they can make you scramble for any kind of foothold. They will make you long for a solid rock on which to stand. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Every one of you have been faced, or you are currently facing, or you will in the future face life situations where the rain of tribulation falls in sheets, where the floodwaters of suffering are rising, where the winds of affliction are slamming against your house. And the question that Jesus wants you to ask yourself is this, is your life built on the solid rock? Or is it built on sand? And the warning is, if your life is built on sand, you will fall. 
And it won't be one of those trivial, minor little slips, you know, the ones where you look around to see if anybody noticed. But it will be a great fall. Psalm 62 is another psalm that arose from a crisis in the life of David. And David learned some lessons from these life experiences, and he's good enough to share them with us, to give us an opportunity to learn from the lessons that he learned and to apply them to our lives. And that's our purpose this morning. The main theme for this message is Jesus Christ is the only dependable true, solid rock on which to stand. Jesus Christ is the only dependable, true, solid rock on which to stand. And my prayer is that all of you will evaluate the foundations of your lives this morning and throughout this week, that you will demolish any foundations that are made of sand and that you will pin your hopes and your dreams and stake your lives and your futures on the only solid rock foundation that there is, Jesus Christ. So we begin this morning by looking at the crisis that gave birth to Psalm 62. Now it's not mentioned explicitly within the psalm what happened, but David describes it a little bit for us in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, David addresses his enemies. He says, How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? You can see the similarity between David's language here and Jesus' description of the storm that threatens the house in Matthew 7. David feels battered. David feels like the, the... Depression is threatening his foundation. His walls are leaning and his fence is tottering. And he follows up this verse with a lament to God about his enemies in verse 4. He says about his enemies, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David's enemies want to topple him with deceit, but they don't just tell lies. They don't just practice deception, and they aren't just being two-faced, but David says they take pleasure in it. These people are evil, devious, and bloodthirsty. But no matter what tribulation you might be facing today, whether it's physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, or some combination of those, no matter what trouble you're dealing with, it can feel like an attack that is intended to topple you, that's intended to knock you down and trip you up, and maybe even to destroy you. It can feel like you're falling. But David is encouraging you here in Psalm 62 to not give up. He wants you to face your crisis confidently as you wait for God to act on your behalf. David wants you to have a sure foundation on which you can stand with confidence. And so let's look at the basis of David's confidence here in Psalm 62. And the first thing I want you to notice, or you may have noticed when Brian read it, is that 
he brackets those verses 3 and 4 where he describes his enemies with almost identical verses. Verses 1 and 2 on one side and verses 5 and 6 on the other are nearly identical. It's as if David is trying to surround his enemies with the power of God. Let's see what he says. In verses 1 and 2, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then, as I said, verses 5 and 6 are almost identical, except that David seems to be preaching to himself. In verses 5 and 6, he says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And I encourage this to you when you're facing a trial and a tribulation that preaching the gospel to yourself is a really good tool to use. We need to talk to our souls. We need to preach the gospel, preach the truth to ourselves so that we don't believe the lies that can bombard us when we are shaken. And David follows up verse 6 with with verse (laughs) 7, ironically enough. But he... He just adds it for emphasis. He says, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is in God. And as I said, it's as if David is surrounding his enemies with his powerful God, his rock, his fortress, his salvation, his hope, his glory. And while the enemies attempt To knock him down like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, David's feet are firmly planted on on God, his rock. And he says in verse 2, I will not be greatly shaken. Sometimes when we're facing a crisis, even if our feet are on the rock, we are shaken a bit, right? But then as if his confidence has been bolstered, by the time he gets to verse 6, what does he say? I will not be shaken. Let's look more closely at David's confident response to his crisis. The first thing he says is that he will wait in silence. Now that's an interesting sentence because David has obviously been expressing his feelings about his enemies aloud to God in verses 3 and 4. And in verse 8, he encourages the people to pour out their hearts to God, so I don't think he can mean that he's waiting in silence with his lips. Rather, it's a silence of the heart. It's a stillness of the spirit. Rather than crying out for fear, David is determined to keep his eyes on God and refuse to trust in himself. He's expectantly waiting for God to act on his behalf. It's not going to depend on his own strength to fix the situation. And he's not going to seek his own glory in defeating the foes by himself. Rather, what does he say? My glory is in God. 
God is most glorified in us when we depend on Him to be our strength. We depend on Him to give us the patient endurance to get through a trial. That's when God is most glorified in us, when we depend on His strength and His wisdom to rescue us. So not only does David say he's going to wait in silence, but he, he's saying that he's going to trust in God alone. Did you notice how many times the word alone or the word only appeared in the first six verses? Well, that is translating a Hebrew word, which can mean truly or indeed, kind of like with Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. But it can also be translated as it is here by the ESV, alone or only. But it's the, here's the key, it's the first word. In the Hebrew poem, it's the first word in verse 1 verse 2, verse 5, and verse 6. In other words, if we were going to translate this uh, literally from the Hebrew, it would read something like this. First one would say, alone for God my soul waits. Verse 2, alone he is my rock and my salvation. Verse 5, alone for God wait in silence. Verse 6, only he is my rock and my salvation. And in the Hebrew, that's just like pounding it in, emphasizing it over and over that our strength is in God alone. David wants us to know that there is only one sure rock on which to stand. And we are to abandon every other foundation, for they are sinking sand. Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, 2, in her song that she sings and prays to God when she has her son and, and has delivered him to the temple for service there, she says this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So David's confidence rests in God's saving ability. Three times he says in the first seven verses that God is his rock and his salvation. Well, what does that mean? God is his rock. To me, it speaks of the, the permanence of God. It speaks of the solidity of God. It speaks of his protection and his strength and his Refuge. You know, when David says it, I think he's thinking of those years that he spent trying to elude Saul and the Israelite army in the southern wilderness. And he would go to that region where there were a lot of mountains and rocks and caves. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 25, it says that David escaped to the rock. And later it says that that rock, that place that he escaped to was called the rock of escape. And so when David was thinking of God being his rock, he was thinking of him as being the rock that saved him, the rock where he hid, the rock that was his refuge and his fortress. But as we saw with Hannah, the, the idea of a rock as a metaphor for God is not unique to David. When we look in Deuteronomy 32 and the song of Moses that he 
delivered to the people of Israel just before he died and just before they entered the promised land. Starting in verse 3, Moses says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. It's interesting that Moses would say, God, the rock, because rocks played a big prominent part in Moses' life. You might remember from our study in Exodus that when the people were thirsty, God commanded him to strike the rock and water issued forth from it. Later in the book of Numbers, once again the people were thirsty and God told Moses to speak to the rock, but in anger, Moses struck the rock again. And it was at that rock that Moses encountered the awesome grace of God. Because even though he disobeyed God and struck the rock, God still graciously provided water for the people. But at that rock, Moses also encountered the justice of God because God said, because of your disobedience, you will not be permitted to enter into the promised land. You won't lead the people to the promised land. And so for Moses, the idea of God as a rock talked about God as the, the giver and the sustainer of life. Talked about God as the God of grace and the God of justice. And Paul borrows this Old Testament image of a rock representing God in 1 Corinthians 10.4. In the middle of a warning to the church to avoid the idolatry that the new nation of Israel indulged in, he says this. He says, And all of those Israelites drank from the same spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. And in this, Paul is saying all of those places in the Old Testament where we say that God is my rock, he says those are all pointing forward to the true rock, Jesus Christ. And he's saying to you, church, that your rock is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And listen, this rock, as Ryan pointed out in our Advent message this morning, this rock is going to return. And every one of you is going to stand before him at the judgment. And if you cling to Jesus Christ alone, if your faith is in him alone, if you are trusting in all that he is and all that he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, when you stand before him at the judgment, if your only plea is that Jesus died for you, if your only plea is that God took the filthy rags of your sin and placed them on Jesus and punished him for your sin. And that he took the pure white robes of righteousness from the Son of God and placed them on you by grace. If that's your plea at the judgment, then you will find that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your solid 
foundation. And you will be granted entry into his kingdom to live with him forever. But if you reject the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ alone, then you'll find that rather than Jesus being the cornerstone of a sure foundation for you, you will find that he's a rock of stumbling. You will find that your foundations are made of sand and you will be swept away to eternal destruction. Don't reject the Son of God and the salvation that he freely offers. Trust in God in faith, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus is the rock of salvation. Jesus is the rock of refuge. Jesus is your only hope. Trust in him today. And so back in Psalm 62, David responds to his crisis by being silent before God, trusting in him alone as his rock of salvation, his rock of refuge, his mighty fortress. And as he does so often in the Psalms, he takes the opportunity to teach these lessons to the people of God. Look at verse 8. David says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And interestingly enough, although we don't see the word alone or only in that verse, verse 8 starts off again with that same word. That started off verses 1, 2, 5, and 6. And so we might read verse 8 as, Alone trust in him at all times. Trust in God alone. It resonates with Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in God and not in yourself and not in foundations made of sand. Instead, David says, pour your heart out to him. The image here is of a, a jug of water being poured out on the sand in the desert. Pour everything out of your heart. When you're in crisis, pour out your fears to God. Pour out your anxieties to God. Acknowledge your need for God. Remember, God is most glorified in you when you're depending on Him completely. And acknowledge that you need His help and acknowledge that He is your Savior, your rock of refuge. Express your trust in him alone. And then the psalm ends with four verses that sound a lot more like wisdom literature from the book of Proverbs than something out of the book of Psalms. Let's look at them. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Once, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. 
At first glance, it may be difficult to connect these verses to the rest of the psalm, but on closer inspection, David is reiterating his exhortation to trust in God alone. Verse 9, he said, don't trust in man. Compared to God, man is but a breath of air. Whether rich or poor, whether high or low or powerful or weak, he says if we weigh them, if we weigh in a balance scale and we put man on one side and God on the other, guess what? Man's always going to go up because God is greater. It makes me think of Paul saying this light momentary affliction is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that it's preparing. It makes me think of Jesus saying, Store up treasure in heaven because that's what's real. That this world and all of its problems are temporal. But the things of heaven are eternal. And yet we have to live in this world, right? We have to live in this world. And so in verse 10 he says, well, don't trust in riches, whether gotten honestly or by deceit, they're not a solid foundation. So rather, remember that all power belongs to God. Remember that God is God. Remember that the God of steadfast love will faithfully fulfill his covenant to his people. Remember that God is good. And remember that God will righteously judge men according to their works. Not saying that salvation is by works, but saying that at the judgment, Jesus is going to look to see who has had the obedience of faith. The, the faith that leads to a life lived in a manner worthy of your calling. And David uses these last four verses to hammer home his point to the people of God that they need to make sure their feet are firmly planted on the solid rock of God so that when you face a crisis, you will not be swept away, but you'll find purchase for your feet on God, your solid rock. So how about you? What is your foundation? What are you trusting in in your life? This is not the time to just give me a Sunday school answer. It's time to get real with God. It's time to ask God to shine a light on your heart. To see if there are any idols in your heart that you are worshiping and trusting in more than him. Here's a little test. It's a, I like to give tests. It's a fill in the blank. How would you answer this? I would be so much happier if blank. I would be so much happier if blank. If you really evaluate your hearts, what goes there? Would you say a bigger house? a better job, if I could just get that promotion, I would be happier. 
If I could take more vacations, I would be happier. If I had better health, I would be happier. If I had a better spouse, I would be happier. Or maybe if you're single, maybe it's if I could just get married, I would be happier. If I just had better kids, or kids, if I just had better parents. Or if you're childless, if I could just have children, I would be happier. The answer to this question can reveal some sandy foundations in your life. Or what about this question? If this was taken away from me, I would be devastated. I would fall flat on my face. I want to encourage you this week to think about those questions, to evaluate your lives and see and see what sandy foundations might be there. And I want to encourage you when you're going through a crisis to fight for faith. Fight for faith that God is God. That God is all-knowing, all-wise, that he is sovereign and he ordains every event in your life, including the crisis you're going through. But God is also good. Fight for faith that God is good. And for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he works all things, including this crisis that you're going through, for your good and for his glory. Fight for faith. Ask God to help you rebuild those foundations and to plant your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it's not going to happen all at once, more than likely. But instead, as it was with me, it's going to be a process. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit on my life just to give you an example. When I was, I've shared this with the church before. When I was 31 years old, my, my dear wife, Sandy, received a diagnosis of cancer. We had two small children at the time. And when I talked to the doctor, it wasn't the most encouraging prognosis that I could have imagined. He said, I, you know, I said, well, what are her chances? And he said this, if she lives for five years, then there's a 75% survival rate. He didn't tell me what the chances were that she would live for five years. It scared me to death. And I have to tell you that it knocked me flat. I didn't know what I was going to do, and I didn't know where to turn. And then, not even a year after that, my dad got a terminal illness. Now, I have to explain that my dad was a solid, a man of solid faith, a Christian that I looked to 
for my security, which although he was a great man, that was a sandy foundation, wasn't it? A man whose wisdom was so, in my eyes, so great that I would go to him often for advice. And when he got this diagnosis, I said, who am I going to go to to bolster my faith? Who am I going to go to for advice? And it knocked me flat. It knocked out the sandy foundations in my life. And I'm so grateful to God that in his great mercy and his great grace and his great love for me that he gave me the faith and the hope to cry out to him. And so I did cry out to him and I said, God, I remember even looking in the mirror and I said, God, I have to change. I have, if I really believe what I say I believe, then I need to live differently than I've been living. And with the power of God, he began to slowly change me. Emphasis on slowly. And it's still a process 30, what, 33 years later. And I haven't arrived yet. But like Paul, instead of looking behind, I look forward. And I keep pressing on toward the upward call of God. And here's evidence of that. Five years ago, my mom passed away. Uh, like my dad, my mom was a godly person. My mom was a prayer warrior, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my mom prayed for me every day. You want to know how wonderful it is to know that there's somebody in the world that is praying for you every day? And I'm not ashamed to admit that I was her baby. I was the apple of her eye. And you know how great it is to actually have one person in the world that's your cheerleader, Right? And I remember on, at the morning that she died, driving away, and I remember thinking, I'm 60 years old, and this is the first moments of my life I've lived without my mother. And I grieved, and I was sad, but you know what? It didn't knock me flat, because God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, had helped me build a solid foundation. And then two years ago, my sweet wife, Sandy, my best friend in the whole world, had to undergo open-heart surgery. And you never know how those things are going to work out, do you? But you know what? It didn't knock us flat. It didn't knock the foundations out from under us because our hope is built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. I share that story to give glory to God because it's all him and not us. But I share it also to encourage you that if you don't feel like you're there yet, cry out to God and ask him to help you build that solid foundation for your life so that when you go through a crisis, your house won't crumble because it'll be built on a solid foundation of Jesus Christ. 
And as we sang earlier today, my hope, our hope, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest in his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, he then, he is all my hope and stay. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless because of his righteousness to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I plead with you, don't let another day go by. Ask him to remove the veil from your mind and your heart to see his glory, to see the truth of the gospel. I would love to talk with you today. Or if that's not possible, I would love to talk with you this week. Fill out a connection card. Put it in the offering box or hand it to me on your way out. I would love to get in contact with you. But when we take communion here, I ask you to stay at your seat or come back to the back and pray with me. But if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sin. And if you've had that profession of faith affirmed in baptism, I want to invite you just to take a moment before you come up for communion and ask God to help you to evaluate your heart and evaluate the foundations of your life. And if he reveals to you that you have some sandy foundations, that's not your sign to not come take communion. Oh, no. Confess that as sin and then come and take communion because this communion meal is about the grace of God. It's about the blood that he shed for you and the body that he gave for you and the power that he gives you to put to death sin and to live your life in a manner worthy of your calling. So just take a moment and ask God to evaluate, help you to evaluate your heart and your foundations and continue to meditate on that this week. And and see what God shows you. Sit with your Bible open and ask God to show you. And then call on him, ask him, cry out to him, pour your heart out to him. And he will respond to you in grace. And he will be your rock of salvation. When you're ready, you may come.